Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number two of The Narrative. I'm your host, Jeff Gallett. I'm so happy that you found the podcast. If this is your first listen, I encourage you to subscribe and review. And also go back later and listen to the first episode featuring Joe Megabo, the CEO of Purple. Let me briefly reset for you about the podcast. The ability to tell stories, both personally and professionally, has become a strength of mine and also a fascination. I find stories really interesting, and I find the storytellers themselves fascinating. So the idea behind this podcast is to meet people who are great storytellers and to get to know them. I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest, Katie Howell. Katie is the founder and CEO of Immediate Future. She literally pioneered social media marketing 17 years ago, which for some context was just as Facebook was making its way onto university campuses. She's often called in as the UK expert on social for TV, radio, and in the press, and it has appeared regularly on BBC News, in The Telegraph, in the FT, and in The Guardian. She's considered the fourth most influential social media marketing expert out there and was named one of the 25 women who've made an outstanding contribution to digital. Katie was named a Provoke's Innovator 25 EMEA list for 2020 and was named one of the top 100 Asian tech entrepreneurs in the UK. She speaks at conferences, she runs master classes, and she guest lectures at two different universities. Oh, and she's co-authored four books on social as well. Her agency, Immediate Future, does award-winning work with brands including LastMinute.com, Princess Cruises, Selfridges, Mission Foods, Google, JD Williams, Fujitsu, Sony Music, and many more. Katie's work and her background is fascinating. Let's talk about it. I recorded this bio introduction to the podcast that we all just listened to, and it includes a bunch of your accolades. And then just this morning, I pop onto Twitter, and I can't even keep up with you. You get so many accolades because I saw that just this morning, you were named as one of the top inspirational people um, in this year's bench press survey by the WOW Company. So congratulations, and I want to hear more about that to start off. Thank you. Uh, I have to say, I didn't know anything about it until it happened. Um, they, they basically did a survey and asked lots of people to nominate who they thought was inspirational for the industry. Um, and and apparently I got picked. It was brilliant. Wow. <laughs> um, but I don't, I don't go out to seek these things. I'll be really, really open with you that the fame side of it is, is you know, it's, it's a pleasurable thing. And I get to t tell my mum, which is yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but actually there isn't, um, there isn't kind of an ambition that I have for this, for the, for the collection of awards. The bit that I like the most is connecting to people and helping people out and, I don't know, chewing the fat with people. I just find that that is the bit that I can't help. It's, uh, it's, Paying it forward, helping people out is probably the thing I do without without thinking about it. So it's really interesting because, you know, today, 2021, so many people, when they think about social media, which is where your expertise lies, um, they think about it through this prism of fame and fortune and influencers and all these things that you do to get clicks and likes and all the stuff that happens in 2021. But when you started doing social media... You know, I won't age either of us, but it was a while ago. And that wasn't really the intent, I don't think. I think it was so nascent, nobody knew really what it was, right? It was just this thing that, and, and I'd love to hear, you know, how you got there, how you gravitated there, because I know your background, your, your educational background, things weren't, didn't even have anything to do with marketing. And you were right at the forefront of pioneering this whole idea of social media marketing, um, which is how we met. So I would just love to hear some of that from your, you know, just your perspective on, on those shifts and how it changed and how you got there. <laughs> and I'll tell you, when I started in social and it wasn't called social, people were still throwing sheep at each other on <laughs> Facebook. So yes, that ages me, but I, um, yes, I did. I did a science degree, uh, always had a penchant for science. Um, and when I graduated, I was unfortunately graduated into a recession here in the UK. So I took a sales job uh, and I absolutely loved it. I, uh, it, was a real, it was a really old fashioned telesales job back in the day when people 
use the telephone. Yeah. Um, uh, and I did that for a number of years and switching from selling ad space in magazines, you know, I don't think anybody under the age of 30 knows what I'm talking about, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> to exhibitions and events. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, got my marketing kind of craft in gear, for want of a better word, um, and then made the shift to um, an organisation, uh, an agency called uh, BMP DDB, which is what it was called at the time, which is the largest and probably the top tier of TV advertising agencies. And I just had a ball. Um, and I stayed there for some time, uh, almost through where media agencies and creative agencies made their split. Mm-hmm. Um, and um and at that point, digital was just coming up on the horizon, sort of mid-90s, we're now, we're now talking about. And as we kind of headed towards 2000, I began to, uh, A, I had a couple of kids, um, annoyingly. I had kind of left EDB just as I had my second child, um, my youngest. And, and, and basically, I, I got the opportunity to work with some of the big digital the brands that were beginning to explore digital through DDB, and they were fantastic. Um, I started in interactive TV, red button advertising, mm-hmm. went on to uh, websites, website build, and then through to the very early days of SEO and search marketing, display, and PPC. So, but I didn't, I predominantly, I tend to sit in planning and biz dev. So, I got this great opportunity to keep swinging from one thing to the next through DDB. And while I was while I was at OMD, which is a media house, I began to uncover this opportunity. Now, I'm coming at this in a very media oriented world that looks at the world of everything through spend and pay. Right. But my background now is as much about PR and comms and marketing, the broader marketing communications. Uh, and I, I thought these message boards that, and Google groups and Yahoo and AOL, all the groups that we hung out in and, and those daft things, which were called uh, email lists <laughs> <laughs> that we used to, I, I still belong to one that occasionally people try to unsubscribe to and it, and it goes ballistic through the system because nobody else pays any attention to it. Right. Um, but it's, it was at that point and it was a dawning realization that was this real opportunity just as this book came out which is you know markets of conversations web 2.0 and it was just brilliant it was like it was like the wild west i just loved it jeff it was just fantastic because we had this opportunity to reinvent marketing and i couldn't help it my whole nature is loving things that are new and shiny and i love the math of it and i love the english of it and i love the relationship of it and it all fitted and came together so um, I started to think about how brands could use community and message boards, which was big, and then MySpace, and then I jumped ship. Uh, and I jumped ship and went freelance because I thought, I'm, I'm in the wrong organisation. I'm now the square peg in a round hole. Mm-hmm. But I'll just freelance. <laughs> you know, a year down the line, I won EMI. As a client, was doing, working with all these, uh, you know, pop stars and helping them with their MySpace profiles and everything else and I was uh, it was it I fell over basically because I thought I don't know I I I just had I had 20 clients I was working around the clock so I I kind of began to to fall to to pieces so uh my mum who used to run her own business said yeah hire someone or cut the clients you know you just you can't do this you've got small babies you're still breastfeeding you're an idiot (laughs) do something about it so thank you mum yeah exactly so I hired uh first I hired an assistant to help me with the invoicing and then I hired my first account manager I tell you it took me till I was four people before I worked out I was an agency uh, it really hadn't occurred to me I'm the most accidental agency owner because it was <laughs> never the big plan I just wanted to do the work yeah I'm fascinated by how brands communicate with audiences and now in the modern age how audiences communicate with brands. I'm just fascinated by all the facets from credibility to what it means to be a brand in a world that keeps fluctuating. And and, and we just kept growing. And we've always been 50% consumer. And as you know, Jeff, 
50% B2B and I won't let go of either side because I think they they help each other and I think B2B is probably the most creative but consumer is much fast much faster moving yeah it's, it's actually less creative in my view because which is which is interesting because you, you you know to my B2B trained mind, I would think the opposite. My first thought would be there were so many barriers around what we could or couldn't do from a B2B perspective. And B2C, you can be more bold, but you probably have a lot more noise you have to cut through when you're on the B2C side. And so even if you're bold, you just you like you can't be bold enough. So, you know, I was going back and just trying to do the mental math of when we first met. And I think it was 2010. Um, and you know, and I was at Tea Leaf and we brought you guys on and we brought you on specifically to help us with social. And I think back now and go, wow, that was 11 years ago. We really didn't know what we were doing with social and, you know, especially compared to where it is, where it is today. And then, you know, we got acquired by IBM a couple of years later. And I've told many people since then that IBM didn't care a damn thing. They gave, couldn't give two craps about what it was that Tea Leaf did from a marketing perspective except for what you were doing for us. Uh, you guys were the one thing that they looked and said, huh, yeah, the rest of this stuff, we kind of, you know, Jeff, you're never going to be the CMO of IBM and we're never going to do the kind of things you do and demand creation is different at IBM, et cetera. But this social thing you guys are doing and the way you're doing it is very different for us. And I thought that that was kind of a, a really, a great, um, uh, it was flattering, but not so much for me. It was flattering, I think, for you and for your organization because we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, you, you taught, us. I, I mean, I knew how to use social media from a personal perspective, but never really gave it the thought of how do you use social, social media and how do you utilize it and how do you create the conversations? Not just, mm. let me just blab something out on Twitter, throw something up on LinkedIn, but how do you create conversations and that are meaningful um, with a voice? And now I look back and go, wow, that was like, you know, 10, 11 years ago. Um, how different that those voices and those conversations are now than they were then. And the way that the, the channel gets utilized. I just was reading your, uh, your, some of your stuff, your content recently about Jumanjiing the customer journey. And I thought it was such a great analogy. I'd love for you to explain it to people because I, I thought it was a really cool analogy for how, you know, the customer journey and social and interactivity with clients are all completely intertwined now. Yes. But the challenge is, and I'd love to think that we were actually there and then better at social, but I actually fear we're actually worse at it um, as a, as a, as an industry of marketeers, we still want to find the easy shortcuts. And Jumanji the Journey is actually, <laughs> I happen to have a, a love of Jack Black, I'm sorry. <laughs> just do. He just, I, he makes me roar with laughter. Did you see uh, his vaccination video? It's just brilliant. Oh my he? God, unbelievable. Like I, I wish that I had the courage to do the things that he does or the complete lack of self-awareness that he has to be able to do it, whichever one it is. Exactly. He's just, he's superb. And um, that Welcome to the Jungle, which is the kind of more modern uptake on Jumanji that that, that was done was, uh, it's a favourite go-to for, you know, a Sunday night movie when you don't want to think about work, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but there's a, there's a part in it where there's this map that only uh, Shelley Oberon, who's the, the Jack Black character, can, can look at. He's mm -hmm. a cartographer. Um, that only kind of reveals itself as uh, as they as they kind of move through the levels in this game as they complete each level, and it has lots of mysterious sort of signposting that keeps changing and riddles within it. And I feel that's like plotting the customer journey when it comes to social. And and part of the rationale behind that is that social doesn't stay still. A because it, you know, you think you've got it fixed, and then the algorithms all change. You think it's got it fixed, and then a new format comes out. You think you've got it fixed, and then you know there's more restrictions or less restrictions or whatever it is. So that's one aspect. But the other part is that social is incredibly leaky. It the, the mistake many CMOs make today is to put social into a channel bucket as one big lump. Like social media is just social media and that's where it sits at the awareness phase or it sits at the lead gen phase or the demand gen phase. But actually social is not a bucket. I mean, LinkedIn is not like TikTok. I don't dance on LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, I don't dance on TikTok. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, um, but so the, the real challenge is, is that A, social media is a collective noun for 
a multiple of channels because that's how your audience views them. Your audience has a different behavior on each one. So you've got these two massive channels, which means how that held you unlock what are not one touch point at the beginning of the journey and one touch point at the end, but actually touch points throughout the journey. And worse still, some of those touch points are now with the brand. Some of those touch points are with the product and, and some of those touch points are with your sales team, your engineers, your delivery drivers. It doesn't make any difference. It's right through the spectrum. So this is a really complicated map and you're never going to define it. A bit like Jumanji, you're never going to actually see the whole picture. Mm -hmm. But what you have to do is understand how that leaky set of touch points impacts your um, impacts the basics of where where your customer is going to be most influenced because that's what you're really trying to do isn't it mm -hmm. you're trying to influence the buyer along the journey in b2b and in consumer we're trying to keep brand front of mind memorable and cut through the disloyalty that is burgeoning through the the last 18 months of the pandemic yeah it's um it's interesting because i think of and you know the the, the sort of overarching theme of of my podcast series is around storytelling because um, that's what really fascinates me. Um, and I think it's what I enjoy the most and enjoyed the most in my career. And I think that good storytellers, and I think that what's really interesting is the, I'm very wordy in written, in speaking and writing and social doesn't allow that. Like it doesn't enable wordy. You have to tell stories in snippets, you know, you have, you know, 144 characters or 288 characters or a 30 second video or, 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 you know, a LinkedIn post, whatever it is. And it's such a challenge to, I, I, I imagine for a brand today, it's so challenging to what is their value? What is their story? How do they get that across? And how do you get across in a tweet or two, as opposed to a tweet or 50, because people aren't going to engage that way. Um, and it's just, it's changed storytelling to a certain degree, right? We like, we think we know everything about the mindset of somebody based upon their Twitter behavior, largely because one person, we kind of did know their mindset based upon their Twitter behavior, um, that, that we all know who I'm talking about, but I, it's just interesting to me when I think about that through a professional perspective, you know, if I'm, if I'm a company and I'm trying to get across my brand identity or, augment it or reverse something about it or tra tell a different story with it, I don't have a lot of space to do it. I don't have a lot of time or attention span to get that, to get that through. That's, I mean, you, you, the thing is you're thinking of storytelling. Can I just say in yeah. terms of a novel, when people say storytelling to people, they think of storybooks. Yeah. Uh, so switch your brain and turn it to Netflix. Now turn it into a script. So what happens is, yes, yes, I'm I'm the most verbose person on this planet. I and I go off at tangents all the time, which drives me mad. Drives everybody else mad as well. Um, but if you think of it in terms of a series, your story is the whole series. It's the whole series, not one part of it. There might be many parts in that, but you now and now you think script writing, so you're now shortening everything. So the story has that similar rhythm of tell a part of it, hook in the next. Tell a part of it, hook in the next. And if you do want to revert it to storytelling, as in book storytelling, then start to think about children's books. Um, say, um, uh, The Three Little Pigs, mm -hmm. right? So The Three Little Pigs is a great example because what you've got is a, is a part of the story. There were three little pigs. So there's the beginning of the story. But there's also a repeater through that, which is, again, about the messaging and that is, you know, I'll huff and I'll puff until I blow your house down or fee fi fo fum, whatever, whatever those types of things. Once mm -hmm. you start to get your head into this space, one of the advantages is that you start to think about sequential storytelling, which is what social is very good at. It's a serialization of sequential storytelling and that you're telling this story through a period of time with a singular message that you continuously repeat. It doesn't have to be the same words, mm -hmm. but the same sentiment of a message where where it's easy to fail at social is to be a bit of this and then a bit of that. And nobody knows why they're following you. Nobody mm -hmm. knows why 
nobody knows why they're there. Your customer is confused. You know, are you a IT services company? Are you an email company? Are you selling me music? Which bit are you doing? Because I, you're so many things, I can't work out where I am. And in my journey, in that journey, I have different expectations. My storytelling moves from, do you have any credibility? Who the hell are you? Mm-hmm. All the way through to, uh, I need to research you and would you be able to help me with this service or that service? And I don't want to speak to you. I just want to find out if you can do this stuff. And then, uh, then I might progress to the, who the hell should I speak to? I don't, again, don't really want to go to the website. Who knows some, somebody there who will actually tell me how it really is. That kind of it. And the, all of these are parts of a story. Once you start to map them out, you can start to think of them, you know, maybe not a Bridgerton, but you know, like a Netflix, yeah. a Netflix serial that everybody is paying attention to. But you know, that's where you need to head. Well, it's funny because you know, I guess I'm kind of old school, and you know, I had to evolve into this. And I, I remember when we started working together that, you know, I wanted to so closely control what it was that our message was, how we got it out. It was it was very precise in what we said. And frankly, you know, looking back on it, no one cared what the company said. But I didn't want to have other people. I didn't want the distributed organization because they would get off message. You know, any message, what, as soon as it went from me to the next person downstream, it lost a little bit and then it lost a little more. It was like the telephone game. And eventually the person, you know, 100 people away has 2% of the message that they get across. And I think that, you know, the idea that you just have to trust your people, you have to train them and equip them and let them go and you build the right culture around an organization whereas when people go out and talk about the company which they will which is just like oh i'm gonna go find somebody who can really tell me what this brand is about that person has to be part of the culture and equipped to be able to do that when they get found and i think that that i can only imagine i did that in a 175 person company i can't imagine doing that if i'm one of you the brands the big brands that you're working with about how do you get that level of trust where you say you know, the, there's a weak, you know, I can't view everybody as the weak link. I have to view them as the strongest link and kind of revert over to just trusting people that they're going to say and do the right things and utilize the channel the right way. And I'm sure it doesn't always work out, but there's, you know, it's just an interesting thing. It was from my mindset as a person who wants to so closely control a storyline to then cede some of that control to other people. It's a really big challenge and some companies are getting it. SAP, Ericsson, amazing. Uh, and there is a key to this. The key is good company culture. And, 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 and when I say to people, actually, if you want to get great employee advocacy, if you want to develop your subject matter experts into influencers, if you want to raise your game and build what we need now in the modern B2B world of relationships, then actually you have to trust your staff. But part of that is a bigger, wider industry challenge, which is how we treat our staff, how we behave with our employees. How Because it's not just a case of saying, I trust you, and then leaving it to yeah. the four winds. Yeah. It's actually a case of bringing people on that journey with you. And that is a real challenge. Yeah, I, I was, you know, just a, a, to pivot off of that, I, um, I had seen it a year ago when you posted it, a really raw video that you did which was right around the time that George Floyd was murdered and the, the protests that were going on around the world. And, um, you know, for those of you, since we're in a, an audio-only format here who don't know, Katie is a woman of color. I think I'm fair to say that. Yes. And, and um, it was just a raw and emotional thing. And I, you know, to pivoting to that, I think of we want people to be... And the, the point of your video was more about how we're not doing enough from a diversity perspective to equip people. And, and you could probably describe it better than I can. Obviously, it was your video. But I, I thought about that through this prism of you've got, you're a big company and you've got thousands of employees and a large percentage of them want to be socially conscious for whatever their cause is. And they're out there in their social channels communicating that and sometimes in very activist kind of ways. And you're never much more than a couple degrees of separation as a brand away from that. And that's got to be scary for those companies because they're, you know, here we are in, you know, the, the big phrase here. I don't know if it's as big a phrase in the UK these days as it is here, but, you know, we kind of mirror each other very closely. The idea of cancel culture, 
that, you know, someone just cancels a company or cancels a relationship with somebody over something that they find offensive, no matter which side of an equation that they're on. And that's got to be a really interesting thing to manage now that everybody is socially connected in one way or another. Um, I'd love your thoughts on that. I think I think the big challenge is not just cancel culture, not just you know, and rogue employees. The biggest the biggest challenge is that most brands a really pay no attention to what's going on on social if they can help it. You know, the CEO and the C suite don't don't want to do it, and when when these missions and these ethics are pushed out through social, they're done so as vanity. And that vanity is being seen through. So the, the cause-related brand who's saying, oh, we fantastic. There's a perfume brand that's just come out recently with, with, a, with a brand called Perfect. <laughs> I, I won't go any further than that. And yeah, the, the firestorm on social about it, virtue signaling, this is a brand that also you know, for many years professed to have very skinny white models, the heroin sheep. Yeah. Um, and now it's suddenly diverse, yeah. you know, where where what people are asking, and certainly the data shows, you know, I'm obsessed with social data. Yeah. The social data shows that certainly here in the UK, one of the biggest triggers for purchase now is diversity of leadership team. And people are asking those questions. Sustainability comes first, then mm -hmm. this. Um, and that ethical behavior is a little bit lower down in America, which is probably not as surprising. It's probably just we're a smaller microcosm, so we're kind of feeling it a little harder. Um, and of course, there's all the COVID stuff and everything else yeah. on top of it. Yeah. But when you look at fundamentally how we have changed, there's been some massive surges in behavior change in the last 18 months. Just ignoring the pandemic, obvious, there have been some changes in behavior around how BLM has affected us in the way that we purchase, which is why here in the UK, some of the supermarkets have taken a very strong line on, on racism and racism in their stores to the point where they've actually gone out and clubbed together and put an advert on telly, you know, to, to say, mm -hmm. we just don't tolerate this anymore. Yeah. If you don't, don't shop here, don't yeah. shop in these five big supermarket market brands. Yeah. Um, but there's also that element and risk that brands carry is that they can be seen as 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 kind of whatever ethics washing, greenwashing, wherever it is, whatever it is over the top, and that that means fundamental change. That's not easy for big behemoth companies. It's really not an easy thing for yeah. them to do. Yeah, I've got you know I live in I spend half my time in Georgia and half my time in Florida, so not exactly the most uh, diverse. I mean they're very diverse but not exactly the most tolerant places in the world. And it's funny because I think that Americans in general think that racism is an American problem, that it's worse here, that it's bad here, you know, and it, it is bad here and it very well might be worse here. I don't know. You know, I obviously, unfortunately, or fortunately should say them, the ability, the epitome of white privilege to say that it doesn't affect me. And I'm white privileged, I'm privileged and white and it doesn't affect me, but it affects me emotionally because I hate to see it at all and I hate to see people who I love and trust and and, and appreciate treated that way um, but it's just interesting to you know I've, I follow I'm a huge football fan European football and I saw that a couple of weeks ago you know that I know that the racism on social media has gotten horrible towards um, towards black professional footballers in the UK and, and not just in the UK it's really across Europe and they did a, you know, the, all the teams banded together and all the players banded together a couple of weeks ago and said, we're just going to do a blackout. We're not going to be on social for three or four days. We're just going to go dark. And I'm just curious, do you think that it made an impact? Does, do, do you think that that impacted anything? Because to me, I looked at it and thought, it's great that they're doing it. I don't think it's going to necessarily silence long term the people who are saying it. And to a certain degree, it was kind of that um you know, it's not greenwashing, but it's that washing of it is we're going to take a stance. We're going to throw the stance up. And, and even like the, the, you know, there's a player from, um, Crystal Palace, I guess, Wilfred Zaha, who finally said, I'm not kneeling at the beginning of games anymore. He said, it doesn't like, I did that and everyone else is doing it. And we did it for a while, but I'm not doing it anymore because it doesn't have meaning anymore. 
Like it, it made sense. And now it's just something it's by rote. Everybody just kneels at the beginning of the game. We kick off and everybody stands up and goes on with their way. And social media inundates me with racist commentary all the time. Now, because I kneeled or because I didn't kneel. And it's just interesting in terms of, you know, what are your thoughts about that? And, you know, do you think that those kind of, it's not, it's not really cancel culture, but does that kind of a blackout, did it have an impact? Do you, do you think it made a difference at all? Oh, yeah. And, and, and this I'm going to lean on, not my marketing skills, but my age. So I grew up when Nelson Mandela was still incarcerated and mm -hmm. at uni, I had the pleasure of meeting his lawyers um, who said every, because I said exactly that, you know, we protest outside the uni, we, we do all of these things, we fight this fight. Uh, 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 um, and, and prior to that, I used to bunk off school. For, the, for your American audience, that is duck out of school. I don't know what you're mitching. Do you call it? I don't ditching, know what you call it. ditching, ditching, ditching school. Yeah. Uh, uh, to go on CND marches at 13, so I was quite, quite the activist. The thing is that those are all key points. That what they do is they encourage debate. That's what we want. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right. The, 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 the continuation of, of potentially kneeling no longer becomes part of the conversation. Just becomes a a flag that the, the racists or the anti-whomevers can, can just throw a rock at, you know, they did with students. Have you not got work to do? Why are you standing and picketing out here yeah. outside Greenham Common about, about the nuclear arms? And it's just, you know, it's a very big challenge, except that when you first do it, it starts the debate, it gets the conversation going, because anybody who thinks that one thing, one thing is going to change sexism, it's going to change racism. It's going to make us pay attention to our world burning. If any of these, no one thing is going to do it. This is massive change. This is mass, massive cultural change, behavioral change that has to come top down. And we've got to continuously find new ways in which to put pressure on so that those changes begin to happen. Yeah. So the government starts to listen. So the businesses say, we can no longer do business because because people won't buy from us unless we change our ways. Yeah, and I think that's great. I mean, I think if the, if the businesses are smart enough to listen, are smart enough to listen in here, they have consumers screaming at them to change and telling them that you need to be more diverse for us to buy from you, that combination is going to force them, I would think, to be more diverse. And they're going to be forced to increase their diversity. And, you know, you're, yeah. a, you're a woman CEO. That's... A wonderful thing and it and you know and a woman ceo who's a person of color that's an even more amazing thing and it shouldn't be it shouldn't be that amazing right i shouldn't like i i shouldn't have to point those things out and it was funny when i was i was going back and just thinking about our talk today like i never thought about you through those prisms i just thought about you as katie you're the person really smart on social that helped us with our business and those other pieces never entered into the equation for me, but I guess I'm somewhat unique or not unique, but I'm a minority in that the majority does look at those things and think about those things. So there's my own, there's my one shot at being a minority, I guess, but. I think, it, I think it's a really tough one, isn't it? Because in the opening up of that, so I, when I went, I, I'm not black, I'm of Indian descent. Mm -hmm. And, and the first thing I was going to say to people is, I'm not black and I'm not Muslim and I, I can't speak for all these people I can, because I have privilege. I'm a typical, uh, you know, second generation Indian in the UK, which is my parents worked really hard, but they were also very middle class. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't struggle through my school education or my university fees because they paid them, you yeah. know. Yeah. So I grew up with, with a sense of privilege. So when I went on, it was never about that. And it was about wanting to change some some really small things that have now, has now consequently not just because of me but because a number of women spoke up was have um made very clear that this is not just the big stuff it's the small stuff mm -hmm. it's the what is now given the name microaggressions mm -hmm. it's the being served in sainsbury's and paying the the, the back in the day when we paid in cash you know paying the the woman back in the day i mean a year ago yeah. right yeah. paid in cash when you could actually um, touch money and not die from yeah, because you exactly. touched it yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah. Uh, and and her returning the money not just my held out hand but returning the money to the table i'm talking about uh being questioned in the middle of a meeting with a client about 
how many Indians that, that live in my house or what does what kind of curries do you eat at home or or as a woman being left with the other women to put the cups away after a meeting in agency land or being ignored for promotion I mean I could just go these are really tiny exclusions yeah and what happens was this I mean, I was in a terrible amount of pain, Jeff. It was really weird because I'm, I, I don't mind admitting to your your listeners, I'm 55. You know, you get a bit chilled out when you're <laughs> you kind of go, I've seen it, done it. Yeah. <laughs> get worked up about this. Yeah. Um, and and uh, but I was very deeply affected by being reminded of small things that have happened me you know repeatedly being asked to prove that i'm british for instance repeatedly by employers and uh, and me not really understanding how that 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 this was wrong is that that sounds even worse doesn't it but almost like this is just what you do yeah this is how you deal with this um well it's not that different when you hear that when you hear that the the african-american father's here in the States and they talk about when they have to have the conversation with their kids about what to do and what not to do when they're out driving their car. And, and, you know, when I had that conversation with my kids about going out and driving a car, it was don't drive too fast. Don't drink and drive. No friends in the car. I never had to consider what happens if you get pulled over by the police and are you going to die because of something? And it's like the, these things that you just take for granted that are not, you know, and in my mind, it's like, well, that would never be a problem. And then, you know, again, that's the epitome of privilege is not realizing that it's a problem for other yeah. people. So and the but the microaggressions, the, the day-to-day microaggressions, I, mm. I'm um, you know, my background is is Jewish, um, but it's ethnically Jewish really. My family was never religious, but you know, my my mom, you know, I, I joke all the time that, you know, Judaism in my family was my mom made a ham every year for Easter. <laughs> so to give you a sense of just how Jewish I am. But I worked for three companies that were based in Israel, so I spent a lot of time in Israel over time. But um, there's even little things that you hear. One happened to me yesterday. I happened to be talking to somebody, and they just made a comment. They just said, oh, I'm going to Jew you. Are you trying to Jew me down on the price? Right? This is 2021, and that person doesn't know me, and they don't know that I have a Jewish background. And I think to them, again, I live in Georgia. But to them, that's just conversation. Like, but there's a root to that, that they grew up yeah. with that. And that's built into them. And, you know, they're probably my age, which means they have kids and maybe grandkids that are growing up with that. And it, it's just that. And that's a it's much lesser hard. basis. It's very hard once you start to unravel this. So let's just, just look at it from a, a Jewish point of view. That When you begin to unravel it, you feel all the small things, all the big things, or the bit where, where there are fallacies and jokes and and myths that sit around this, which may affect the movie industry, which affect the just, and it goes on and on and on, and you just it becomes very overwhelming. You can yeah. see why I was so upset. Because yeah. You're like, oh my god, I, I feel like I pulled the thread of something, and I'm still pulling the thread of yeah. this thing, uh, and I'm ne- we're never going to fix it. But it, it made me realise that it's one of those elements in our life that we can be the instigators to change and that is you know i'm just on the touch point of a gen x uh, us gen x's were very good at making change we just need to go back we then went and partied for a number of years yeah. <laughs> but, but, but we can go back to this point which is i can adapt my language i can use they and their instead of she her and mm-hmm. him i can be more open i can stand up for things that i don't believe are right I can understand mental well-being and mental health in the workplace. All of these things I can do. Yeah. And that's what I think is, is, is the biggest benefit. And, and pivoting back to your expertise, you know, your professional expertise, I mean, it's really interesting how, you know, I don't, there's plenty of people who talk about the idea that all of these things have been inherent and we've all dealt with them, you know, and people, that it's all been underlying. And then social in general, allowed them to have, allowed a platform which these commentary could come out from undercovers. You know, people, it would be one thing for that person to say something to me in a story yesterday or for someone to not put the money on the table or on the counter when they're paying, giving you money back at Sainsbury's. But it's a whole nother thing when they go onto a social platform and amplify that out. And it now isn't just affecting you or affecting me 
or affecting whoever, but now they've got this voice and that voice becomes amplified. And now suddenly because of the power of social, you've got what seems like this cavalcade or this onslaught of people who think this way and talk this way. And, you know, I, my, I, I tell people all the time that, you know, here in the States, at least, it was obviously all bubbling under for a long time. And then, you know, our former president made it possible that you could sort of pull it out and not, didn't have to hide it anymore, um, which is both good and bad. I mean, the bad part is it's out. The good part is you kind of now know who thinks that way. But um, but it's amazing, you know, like, what are your thoughts on how social has, you know, social has gone from this thing that really started out as a fun way for people to communicate and have voice and now has this whole corporate side we talked about earlier, but it also has this this underlying thing with disinformation, misinformation, you know, from both sides, not just from one side or the other. I just love your thoughts on that. Uh, and it is, I have to say, under your previous president, I spent many, many uh, nights doom scrolling. It's almost like I was looking for the negativity um, out of my working life because it became a, a, a horrendous obsession to look at why people were doing this, why there was such collective negativity. And it did, by the way, fly here immediately, allowing and giving permission for that language yeah. to be used here. And there is some combats, both by the um, by the platforms themselves, you know, need to be better, need yeah. to do better. Yeah. But actually, there's some really curious things being done by... Um, uh, by individuals here who are grouping together. So uh, I read on the BBC today that there is a volunteer group that is um, a kind of, uh, in, what would you call it, is, is kind, of, kind of getting involved with anti-vaxxers and mm -hmm. then persuading them otherwise by putting up kind of the idea that it's Bill Gates. They'll put up a picture of Bill Gates and the vaccine because everybody thinks he's behind it. Right and draw them into a conversation and then force break them. So there is some re-education, but it is a, a horrendous um, reflection of who we are as human beings. Um, it, more that than anything else, who we are as human beings. And there is a global drive towards nationalism, which yeah. is not helping yeah. matter. So I think there are broader things than just the outlet of social, but social is unre relatively unregulated. Yeah, I mean, it's it, just we have this underlying tribalism as people, right? That that at the end of the day, I mean, I used to tell people all the time, like that when when the U.S. invaded Iraq back in the day and broke Iraq apart, you know, unfortunately, dictatorship was the only thing that was kind of holding Iraq together because it's a bunch of tribes and the bunch of tribes that were at war with each other for thousands of years, and they had a dictator who was leading it, and the dictator held it together, and then you pull the dictator out and it's like pulling the cork off the top of a bottle of champagne all the champagne comes out the bubbly stuff comes out and you're left with all the refuse at the bottom and you know i think that's the you know the naive american approach is we're just going to go and you know we're going to make everybody like us democracy is good let's go make everybody have democracy and it's like well you know maybe not and it, it's interesting when you think about it through the context of, of social whereas you know here's something that's good but there's some stuff in there that can be bad and all the platforms and the disinformation and you know that I I personally like I waited by the minute I was literally by the minute to when I could get vaccinated like I I mean I was stressed out before I could get vaccinated I actually drove to a adjacent state South Carolina because they started vaccinating 55 and over which I am earlier than Georgia or Florida did did where I live. And I, you know, I was like, I'm willing to drive a five hour round trip to go get this shot. And other people are like, yeah, I'm never getting that shot because Bill Gates is going to put a chip in me or I'm going to get 5g service or whatever it would be. And it just amazes me. And I just wonder like, how, how did those thoughts ever become so pervasive that people believe, you know, and what, what the trust that people put into strange things. Well, this is, and it's also, uh, let me just tell you this. First of all, it's the lens you look at, look through socially. Uh, and as marketeers, our filter bubble tends to focus on things that might be of risk to us or our business. But when you actually look at the data, it's not half as negative as you think it is. Mm -hmm. These are spikes that the press love to make a lot of. Yeah, big of course deal. They do. Oh, oh, oh. So the press continues. And what happens if we get the press ripple? So, you know, 
some idiot goes out there and says, you know, we're all going to grow an extra head if we take the vaccine. Um, then loads of other idiots join in and then the press take it on and it's all splashes on the front page of our dirty little rags over here. Um, and then it goes back into socials. That ripple happens and it accelerates. But actually, it's a very small percentage of the conversation. When you look at the conversation, that actually, so we, we use a tool called Brandwatch, mm -hmm. um, which goes and listens to most of the conversations on Twitter, Reddit, Tumblr, the blogs, um, uh, and lots and lots of forums like Mumsnet over here in the UK, for instance, as well as uh, uh, globally. And, um, and, and when you look at that, most people are actually talking about being happy happy to get out happy for the future very it's an extraordinary amount in fact there was something i was reading earlier about something like 20 percent more happiness than there was pre-pandemic in the language we're using in social so but those stories are not interesting right right <laughs> they right they don't fall into the ripple pond that is the news and then they repeat Right. So, so actually, you know, for instance, Brandwatch also brought out some data in the new year and most new people saying, what, what were people's news resolutions, for instance? Mm -hmm. And, um, some of, you know, for most years, it's, you know, give up, drink, go on a diet, get fit. Yeah. This year it was, um, it was see more of my friends and family, uh, uh, learn more, develop myself more and read more. Those are the first three. Uh, and that is fascinating. We it are is. changing. It is. We are changing as a, and that's massive. The jump between that and the lower part in terms of numbers is huge. So in other words, those are the priorities. And as a society, our priorities have switched from between one and the other. And, and, and we've become much more focused on being better kind of people. And that never gets reported on. So we go, oh, isn't social media terrible? But right. actually there's loads of good in there. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I, I'm one of those people who uh, I probably would reflect the second set of sentiments, right? There were things that, you know, and I, I'm, every year I make the resolution that I'm going to work out more. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to do all these things. And I, I never do any of those things. And, uh, you know, I'm one of these people, I don't, watch a lot of television. It's like a running thing with my wife and I. She loves to watch television shows and series and I just struggle with it and I make up excuses. And one of those excuses is that I have this history of traveling so much. And before the days of the Netflixes of the world, there were a series and it was on every Thursday night at nine o'clock. And I wasn't home on Thursday nights at nine o'clock or I wasn't home on three of them in a row to follow a series. So I just never developed the DNA to watch those things. Um, and then, you know, this pandemic hits and everybody's trapped at home. And everybody said, well, now's your perfect time, right? You have nowhere to go. You have nothing to do. You're locked down. And I still didn't. And there wasn't even sports, which is my big thing to watch. So I was like, okay. And then you would think that I would have backfilled that and said, well, I don't have that to do. So I'm going to read. I'm going to invoke reading back into my day to day. And I really didn't do that either. And I think it's gratifying. I mean, I'm glad to hear that people are talking about reading more because I think the fundamental root of a lot of the issues we have is just simply a lack of learning, a lack of understanding of, you know, reading about other cultures, other people, other ways of doing things, other thought. Hopefully they're not just reading things that just reinforce their echo chambers, but who knows, but it's better to learn than not to learn. Um, so it's, in, it's, it's interesting to hear that, that data point. Did you see, has, has the data shown an increase in social activity during the lockdown since the pandemic? I mean, I imagine there has to be the spike. Like people have, I have nothing else to do. So I'm just going to be on these platforms all day long. Oh, totally. I mean, during the pandemic, so it's roughly around a 40% increase in activity. Twitter, uh, TikTok, which is, you know, flapping around somewhere has just gone ballistic as yeah. you know yeah um and then you've also got some really interesting things like the over here they're called the boomers but they're i guess they're the 65 plus 60 plus the, the point um, post-world war ii generation yeah, post -war, yeah but i don't i wasn't sure if they called them that in america yeah but, um, yeah we do yeah so it's quite an insulting phrase calling them boomers these days but anyway um but it, the the boomers all made their way on social are terribly active on social media um kind of reigniting engagement, um, entering all the blooming competitions at the moment. They're loving it. Um, so yes, you see fluctuations in, in um, consumption, behavior, 
so it's not just where they're consuming but what people are doing with that consumption mm-hmm. so what trends what 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 matters more um to people what are they likely to engage with and i don't mean engagement for the sake of engagement i don't yeah. mean just a like i mean yeah. as in what are the things they begin to to, to adopt as part of their own behavioral change and, and this i am I'm endlessly fascinated with this because I think as a nation, we, we, we move in both trends, but we also move in surges in our behaviors as a globe, even it's, it's, it's a, it's a, the big swings that you see when you, when you get to my age where, you know, it feels somewhat that sometimes Britain is great. Britain is, is returning to the Mm seventies in some cases and, and others where everything has changed. Um, And we need to be very, just taking it back to you know marketing that is the bit we need to be more aware of you know i still hear way too many cmos talk about marketing as though they were they were the buyer yeah. uh and not understand that 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 their buyers are segmenting and self-segmenting into very fractioned groups and as I point out to on many speeches that I do you know I do uh, you know I live in Surrey I do not hang around with a load of 50 year old women yeah. I live in Surrey my demographic is probably what I hang out in is my interest groups yeah I, I I I pay attention to the things that fascinate me um and and then that is the swing we need to pay attention to not you know not whether or not there's more people on social, but what are they doing on social? And is this an opportunity for us to reach them? It's, it's interesting. And I thought when you when you just mentioned the 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 number of boomers who came onto social and and, and in the context of what you were just saying, my, my mind immediately went to and your your background having, you know, bought advertising or sold advertising and you know, it was always that eighteen to thirty-four demographic. Like we don't care we don't micro segment within that 18 to 34 democratic. We would go men versus women. Like if you can get me an 18 to 34 year old man, he's the ultimate buyer. It's probably pretty simplistic when you think about it in the, in a 2021 world that that may basic metric that's existed since probably the sixties is probably not, it's way too, and especially in a diversified digital world where people have so many places to go and choices. And I'm, I'm older than you are and I'm very digitally connected and I do almost everything online, but I know other people who are not much older than me who can't function, do anything online. It's just, an, there's an interesting there, but I'm the same way as you. You know, I tend to hang out with people who have the same interests in me, not who are in the same age bracket as me. I don't discriminate on their age, but like we have to have the same things we're interested in much more than, oh, you know, there's another old guy. I'm going to go hang out with him. Yeah. And it's also because we're beginning to understand marketeers and get much more data insight, cookies or no cookies, on intention. Mm-hmm. So what is our, so you can do something like Peloton, yeah, which has, you know, skyrocketed through the last couple of years, even though it keeps falling over its own feet. Uh, let's ignore that bit, but yeah, let's just yeah. talk about the audience that they're selling to. So the obvious one is, of course, the person who has the PT trainer, the PT, and, the, and who's obsessed with the, gy- the gym bunny, right? Yeah. That's, that's super clear. But actually, what you've probably also got are people who are on a journey. Um, so part of their thing might be, this is my next step. I might be training for something else. So therefore, this moment. we've got the folk who, uh, like me, which is there's nowhere to let anybody see me exercise in public. So I want something at home where I can do so quite happily in private. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you may have ones where it's a group share or it's a family setting where this has much more to do with about getting your kids interested in exercise, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, that's, I don't, we don't work for Peloton, so I was making that stuff yeah, up. Yeah. But, but, but you get a principle, the intention to purchase is the part that we should be paying attention to, not the demographic. And then alongside that, wrap attitudes, behaviours, beliefs. So now what we have is intention-based psychographics, and that is the bit that I find super interesting because sometimes people don't behave the way you want yeah like what really yeah <laughs> they do that um a great example for instance is the the amount of, of vocal protests against fast fashion yet the fastest growth areas are still the cheap fashion mm-hmm. outlets 
And, and it's not what you have to do is layer behavioral data on economic data. When you start to look at the, the more econometrics, you then realize that actually the reality is it's the price point because yes, the price point matters because there's a whole lot of people out of work right now. Right. Right. There's a whole lot of people with not enough money. Right. So of course these things are perpetuating. Right. Um, it's just a way, it's a, it's a much more insightful way to do it, but brands still get very reluctant um, to invest the time in doing it. Yeah. To, to really understand their audiences. Makes sense. All right. Before I let you go, I'm finishing off every pod with a section that I'm calling three and out. So no prompting. I haven't given you any of this in advance. I'm going to ask you three questions and I want you to just give me your off the top of your head thinking. So the first one is, What's the most recent show or movie you've seen or binge watched, and do you recommend it? Oh, um, you know what? I've just I've just started watching Star Trek Discovery again, mm -hmm. and yes, I'd recommend it. I yeah. actually a total Trekkie. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know it's a common thread. Everybody I'm interviewing is a big sci-fi fan. It's really interesting. <laughs> um, along those same lines. How about a book or a podcast other than this one that you've listened to that, you know, a recent book or our favorite podcast you've listened to. And would you recommend that, that the listeners go take a gander at that? So I am just, I'm not fully finished with this one. I'm showing you this, but okay. I will read it out. Okay. It's called brand splaining by Jane Cunningham and Philippa Roberts, which shows and reveals how they examine something like 7,000 adverts um, how adverts are gender stereotyping and how they, um, there's some ridiculous numbers and I'm going to get them all wrong, but basically revealing that when A, women rarely appear in TV commercials and when they do, they are always situated in the home. Interesting. So how, looking at how advertising has shaped us very sublim subliminally to, um, and it's just really interesting. I find this stuff really interesting because, again, it's all about behavior. I'm terrible at mine. One crap mind behaviors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that is interesting. I'm trying to think. I'm like, as soon as you said it, I'm going through my mind and trying to think of ads that I see in which women aren't just being moms or just being homemakers and things like that. And it's not that many that I can think of. There are some and probably, you know, maybe more here in the States than there are in the UK. Um, but it's, it's really interesting. And I think that goes back, you know, I, I, I read that blog post you wrote on national, on, on international women's day about that challenge, you know, the, the, the finding the courage to challenge. And if I, again, it goes back to that diversity conversation we had earlier, which, you know, obviously gender is part of diversity and, you know, just that, that there just aren't enough. I mean, I, I find, I guess I'm an outlier because I've always believed in empowering women and having women in really strong positions. And you know, I mean, you know, you know, most of the people that you've worked with that I worked with together, I hired were women and strong ones. And it's just, it's hard for me to imagine. It's just funny that the way you would think that that mindset would permeate into the big brands thinking, you know, why are we treating 50% or more of our audience as though they're this different thing? Cause they're not. So um, it's, it's madness, isn't it? But it's a good book, so definitely okay. worth a read. Brand it splitter. won't take you ages, but it's it's one of those ones that makes you think. And then the last one: what's your current song or artist you've got on repeat? Oh my god, you're gonna hate me! I'm sorry, I'm just such an old puss. <laughs> but, um, Mine's mine so, are all old people, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. So um, yes, it, uh, <laughs> this week has been Dolly Parton. Really? I see. So I can yell like crazy because I know the words to all her songs. There you go. Um, and dance about the living room because I'm still working from home at the moment. And I find the lack of energy that I normally get from my day-to-day -day work working agency is I sorely missed. So I have to put Dolly on, turn the volume right up and um, dance about. <laughs> so I'm going to give you this as your homework now as we, as we finish. I mean, I, from something I heard earlier today, I think you could dance around the house listening to Dolly and put it on TikTok. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Narrative. Your feedback is always welcomed, as are your shares and, of course, your reviews. Please subscribe and review The Narrative on your podcast platform of choice, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.